Okay, today's re- reading is from Romans, Romans um, chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore we are, were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him, to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. I don't know if you've ever been asked the question, maybe if you're of the age, what are you going to do when you leave school? Has anyone ever been asked that question? So some of us, we have to sort of think back a little bit further than maybe others. Uh, for those of us who, like me, have uh, kids in that bracket, um, I, I, I notice the uh, kind of the weariness that settles on them when they get asked that question one more time. But when you think about it, and maybe for those of us on the far side, you think back to all that time at school preparing for the job. And then you go off and you're at uni or TAFE or, or whatever, and you're getting more skills for the job, and you're getting asked all the time, what are you going to do when you leave? What are you going to do when you leave? What are you going to do when you leave? And then you're all priming yourself, you're psyching yourself up, and then you're applying for jobs, and you're sending off all the CVs, and you've got your referees and all those things, and then you sit the interview, and then you get that phone call that says, we'd like you to start. We'd like you to start on this day. For those of us who've been there, do you remember what it's like turning up that first day? You've fought for so long, you've worked for so long, and then you're there. I remember my first day as a physio thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to kill someone. I'm sure I'm going to kill someone. They are trusting me with their lives. My first rotation as a new graduate physiotherapy was in the intensive care department of Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Uh, thankfully, I didn't make the news, but it was close. 
no longer was the suit. I had to learn that this is how you live. This is how you work. This is what it means. No longer did I walk in to see a patient and say, hi, I'm Cameron. I'm a physio student. Here's my supervisor and she or he is going to make sure I don't kill you. That, that safety net was gone. You know, maybe, maybe for you, you work in finance and, you know, those millions of dollars or whatever, they could just vanish and it could be totally your fault. You maybe know what that's like. That freakiness of, how do I do this? But it's the same for the Christian life. When I became a Christian, it wasn't long after that that I started asking the question, okay, I'm 14 If I live as long as my grandfather, I'll die in my 90s. What do I do for the rest of the time? Do I just kind of mark time? Is is, is it like having, I've got the ticket, you know, the concert's coming up. Uh, I'm not quite sure when the date is, but it makes absolutely no difference. Maybe I'll listen to a few albums, you know, familiarise myself with the music a little bit more. But really, it doesn't change very much. Life goes on until that day arrives. Is that how it is for us? We've got the promise of an eternity with God. We've got that guaranteed because of the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. That's there. Doesn't matter how we live now. Does that future guarantee have anything to do with today, with tomorrow? with next week, next month, next year. How do we live? Now, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 6 to 8, unpacks that period of time between our conversion and either when Christ comes back or we go to him. He unpacks what it looks like to live. But before we get there... I want to unpack, because we've had three weeks off. I want to see if you guys are paying attention. We're going to unpack Romans 1 to 5 really, really quickly. But instead of going through verse by verse, I'm going to unpack it in terms of the main themes that Paul is actually looking at. So here's a different way. Where does Paul start his argument? He starts at creation, doesn't he? In chapter 1, he actually talks about the fact that God is our creator, And as our creator, we have a relationship with him. We are his creatures. He is our creator. And it is right that he has expectations of us. God is not some option that's out there. God is our God because he created us. Whether we choose to acknowledge that or not is completely another matter. But we cannot deny the relationship. Parents, your children, they might say, I wish you were not my parents. My kids are thinking that right now. But they cannot deny that we, in a very real sense, are their creators. And I have expectations of my family, my children, that I don't have of other people's kids. So if you're not part of my immediate biological family, come around for lunch I'm not going to say to you afterwards, can you clear the table, do the dishes, sweep the floor, make sure this kitchen is nice and tidy. But my children will vouch that I do that to them all the time. Different expectations. 
You are not my creation. They are my creation. There is a relationship there that has obligations. And the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. Humanity are God's creation. And there is an obligation there. And the obligation he unpacks in terms of worship. He tells us that we are created to worship. Now, no matter how good the band is, uh, that is not what Paul is talking about. He's not just talking about we are created to sing songs. He's not talking about, some people talk about what we do now as a worship service. He's not talking about Sunday mornings. He's talking about a life that is built around him. A life that has him at the heart. A life that is centred on God. Whether you're here on Sunday morning, whether you're at school, at uni, at work, at home, whether you're on the soccer field or whatever it is that you're doing, Christ, God, is at the centre. And it is a life that is lived for him. That is what he made us for. And that is what the start of the Bible talks about as Eden. And that is what the end of the Bible talks about as heaven. That is there. That is what he made us for. First theme. Second theme. He introduces sin, doesn't he? Now, sin, as Paul unpacks in Romans, if we are created for worship, what is sin? Sin is where we don't worship, when we refuse to worship our creator and we actually create, we actually worship other things. Romans chapter 1. Verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve created things rather than created. They build their life, they center their lives around things that are not God. That is sin. It is a rejection of worship, rejection of relationship. And that brings us to his next point, judgment. God's right response is to judge sinful humanity. We have that relationship. We deny that relationship. God judges. And Paul tells us that's wrath now and a day in the future where he will judge the secrets of all people's hearts, where we will all give account. And Paul makes plain in chapters 2 and 3 that the inevitable consequence of that is death. There is no one who will stand before God on their own performance and say, I lived a perfect life in relationship with you. Actually, there is only one, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. But this is Paul's train of thought. Creation, sin, judgment, death. It's like a railway track. We are designed by God to run along the track that leads from him as our creator through worship to an eternity of blessing. But sin comes in like that little junction and it takes us onto another track. It takes us onto another track that we cannot actually escape. Now, in Sydney, where I grew up, I used to catch the train to school and I used to get on the train at Pimble Station. And the next stop 
it was Taramara, and then it was Warawi, and then it was Warunga, and then it was Waitara, and I would get off. And you know what? For seven years, it never varied. Never did I get on at Pimble and find that it wasn't Taramara the next stop. I didn't find that all of a sudden Linfield had jumped in there and I'd gone somewhere else. No, I got on that one train and I went to that one place. And it's the same. It's the same for us. Because our sin will always lead to God's judgment. There is no way that that avoids. And God's judgment will always lead to our condemnation. The Apostle Paul, in the previous chapter that Simon dealt with at the end of last term, he spoke about us as a humanity in Adam. Adam was our head. He was the captain, if you want to put it like that. And as his sin derailed humanity, we've perpetuated it. And he gets to the point where in uh, Corinthians 15, he says, as in Adam, all die. There is one destination for those on the train of Adam, and it is death as a result of God's righteous judgment. Quite simply, we need another train, don't we? We need to get back on that track. And that is what Paul has been explaining. Because if we read through in Romans, we're not actually in death, are we? So in Romans chapter 5, he tells us, read these incredible words with me. He says, since we have been justified through faith, declared to be in a right relationship because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we have peace with God. Peace with God. We are friends with God. We are blessed by God. We are in that relationship that the Old Testament described as shalom, that wonderful state of blessing. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, listen to these words, into this grace in which we now stand. Those words capture the essence of the Christian life. This is describing the place in which we live. We don't live under law. We don't have to keep rules so that we might be good enough for God because we can't. It doesn't work. It will always lead us along the track, sin, judgment, death. You cannot do it. But through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been picked up and re-railed back onto the track that we are meant to. Peace with God, grace in which we stand. Incredible things. This is where we are. And now Paul, at the start of chapter 6, is speaking to the issue of how do we live? And if you are a person this morning who has faith in Christ, if you're a Christian person, this is the question for you. How do you live? How do you do it? Does living by grace, as Paul's opponents are claiming, does it make you worse or better? Because you have there in chapter 6, verse 1, what should we say, Paul asks? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, at the end of chapter 5, Paul has just, he's raised this issue that basically says grace 
trumps sin every time. It's not like you're going to run out of grace. So he says when sin increases, grace increases all the more. You're not going to get to a situation where human sin is too big for God's grace. And so now he's flipped it around and you can imagine his opponent saying, oh, okay, okay, so you're telling me the more sin, the more grace. God looks better because his grace is on show and therefore I should sin all the more, shouldn't I? Because that makes God look better. Now, let me rephrase this. It's an exercise. For those of you who have um, boyfriends or girlfriends, perhaps, uh, maybe husbands and wives, I want you to go and try this. Maybe you really, you love your other half heaps. They're a wonderful person. Absolutely fantastic. Lovely, gracious, forgiving. And I want you to go to them Sometime in the next week, just raise this hypothetical. I don't want you to do it, okay? I just want to raise hypothetically. Go to them and say, uh, dear one, you can use those words if you'd like to, dear one, you love me so much. I rejoice that you are such a wonderful, forgiving, gracious person. Now, I want you to tell me how far I can push that. I want you to tell me how much I can take you for granted. Because you are such a lovely, gracious, wonderful, forgiving person. I'd actually be doing you a favour, I think, because I'd be giving an opportunity for you to show just how forgiving, just how gracious, just how wonderfully merciful you are by being a complete scumbag. So, so would you mind if I bless you in that way by actually being grossly unfaithful? Try it. Tell me how it goes. I'm interested to hear. Uh, Because that's the argument that Paul's opponents are making. They're basically saying God's grace is wonderful and our sin shows God's grace. Our blackness shows his whiteness. So let's go on being really black. So God is seen as really white. Let's go on being completely unfaithful so that the wonderful grace and mercy of God is shown in its fullness. Do you see how wrong that is? And the Apostle Paul now unpacks how that works, why it is so wrong, and how we are to see it. He tells us in previous chapters that our salvation is all built on the perfect, finished work of Christ. So the gospel... The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he has four main illustrations, four main metaphors or word pictures that explain the impact that that gospel event have. Now, nine o'clock really struggled with this. So I want you to show me that you are so much smarter than nine o'clock. So there are four main ways, and we have dealt with them over the last little while, that the Apostle Paul unpacks the implications of the gospel. Is anyone brave enough to see if they can actually tell me? Just one. No, you're all the same, aren't you? Come on. Anyone brave enough? I'll give you a hint. The first one's justification. 
And so it's a, it's a picture that basically taken from the law courts and it says we are guilty, condemned sinners under God's judgment. If we are justified, we are declared righteous, not on our own merit, but on the merit of Christ. That's one image. What's another one? Come on, we've got you going. Uh, that's jump, you, you're ahead in chapter 8. We will come to adoption, but a jump, that's jumping too far. Anyone? Daniel? Reconciliation. Okay, reconciliation. We were enemies, and now God has made us friends through Christ. Anyone else? Oh, come on. There was two at once there. Sanctification is, that's a fruit that works out differently, but it's not, that's the ongoing process of being made more holy as well as something, but it's not what Paul's focusing on here. Propitiation is one, words ending in shun, okay? Now, this is a word that we don't really use much, but it's a really important word because what it's describing is that where God was personally angry at our sin, Christ as a propitiation turns aside the wrath of God. And so where we were guilty sinners, we are justified. Where God is angry, he is propitiated by Christ. Where we were enemies, we have been reconciled. And the last one, while we were slaves to sin, he has redeemed us. That is all what the gospel, that's how he unpacks the gospel. But all of that is outside us at this moment. That's something that someone else has done. Christ has done. And now in chapter 6, Paul explains how it hits the ground in our life. I want to show you a little video, and I've actually given you on the handouts a printout from this guy's book, uh, but watch the video because it's, it's more fun anyway, explaining what Paul talks about as union with Christ. Here we go. Imagine yourself at the airport about to board a plane. You're at the airport, there's you, there's the plane. And my question is, what relationship do you need to have with that plane? Would it help, for example, to be under the plane? Would it help to be inspired by the plane? What about following the plane? Of course, the relationship you need with the plane is not to be under it, behind it, or inspired by it. You need to be in it. Why? Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will also happen to you. At its heart, the New Testament idea of being in Christ is something like that. What the New Testament says is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we become united to him. And we are in him so that whatever is true of Jesus is also true of us. Good book, it's worth reading. But you get the idea. It's no point following the plane. Uh, every now and again when I catch a plane, uh, or particularly I probably do it more to Karen than she does it to me, I tell her to flap hard, uh, a little text message, it's like, as if you could. What point does it be to be inspired by the plane? One day I might be as good at the plane and I might be able to fly like the plane. It's not going to happen. But if I'm going to get to Melbourne or if I'm going to get to Darwin or if I'm going to get to Sydney by plane, 
what happens to the plane happens to me. And the Apostle Paul tells us that his union with Christ, that we are in Christ. And what happens to Jesus happened to us. And so you have it there in verse 2. We are those who have died to sin. When do we die? Some of us here may have actually, you know, had that kind of heart-stopping moment and been restarted and all that sort of thing. Has anyone had that? No one's owning up, dying and rising again. But here he's saying not just some, but every single person who has faith in Christ has died. When did we die? His point is that when Christ died, we died. So Cameron Munro, the old sinful nature Cameron Munro, died 33, 36 AD on a hill outside Jerusalem. If you are a Christian, you were crucified by union with Christ. You were symbolized, this symbolized, it says in verses 3 and 4, through baptism. Baptism represents the faith that unites us to Christ. And as we die and rise again in baptism, it symbolizes the fact that by faith in Christ, we die and rise with him. Verse 6 tells us that our old selves were crucified. Verse 7 says we've died and be set free with Christ. Verse 9, death has no mastery over Christ and over us because we have died with Christ. To go back to our, our train metaphor, our train image, it's not that Jesus rode the train of sin, judgment, death, for us, he did, but he rode the train with us because we were in Christ. It's not just something that happens out there. It's something that by faith, Scripture tells us that we were with Christ as he died. If you imagine an escapee, from prison he's on the run he's free until the the policeman catches him and then the judge puts him straight back in prison because the penalty hasn't been paid he is not declared righteous right with respect to the law but what this text what scripture tells us is that by union with christ As the penalty was paid by him, it was paid for us. So we're not escaped criminals waiting for the judge to throw us back in in, in prison. We are those for whom the penalty's been paid. And so according to the law, we're righteous because Christ has paid it for us. The penalty has been paid. Sin's power has been broken because we have died and we have risen to new life. 6 verse 4, look at it there. It says, We were buried through him, uh, with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of, uh, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That is what has happened. That is what Paul is saying is the Christian life. We live in Christ. 
And so as Christ died to sin, we died to sin. So to answer his question, shall we sin that grace might increase? Paul says an emphatic, no. Are you kidding me? You died with Christ to sin. Why would you live there? It's like the freed prisoner, the one who is declared right, going back to jail of his own volition. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? The Apostle Paul is telling us that we have risen to new life by union with Christ. Sin is not our master. Death is not our destiny. We live for God, for righteousness. Imagine a story where uh, you've got an eagle. It's been kept captive, chained to a post. Can't fly. Just walks around the post. And one day the man that kept that eagle captive announces to his village, we're going to free the eagle. And the village gathers to see the eagle take flight. The chains are struck off. The eagle is freed. But the eagle just continues to walk in the same rut around the post because that's all it's ever done. It's made to fly, but it lives as though it's chained. The prisoner, the penalty's been paid. They've been declared right to go back to prison. Why would you do that? For us, we have died and risen with Christ to new life. Why would we look at sin and go, oh, let's go for it? Why would you go there? You've died to that. Live as free people. And Paul says that. He says, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11. I want to underline that everything that Paul has said up until this point has not been a command. He hasn't told you to crucify the old nature. He has told you that your old nature has been crucified. He doesn't tell you that you must die with Christ and rise again with him because that has happened. What he's saying now is live in light of reality. You are those who have died and risen again with Christ. Live that. And it's not something that just happens. It's something that you've got to work at. Talk to someone who's been married. Remember the first day after you were married? I had a friend, um, when they got married, she woke up in the middle of the night and absolutely freaked out that there was this weird guy in the bed next to her Uh, because she was so used to not sharing a bed with anyone. She had to learn that actually being married meant sharing a bed. And wow, you know, what is that? She had to learn, we all had to learn how to work that relationship out. Paul is saying in the same way, we have died and risen again. We must daily work out how that works on the ground. And you do that by first of all claiming each and every moment who you are in Christ. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. How do we do this? We preach the gospel to ourselves. When I was growing up, I was part of a Bible study that uh, had a guy from the Navigators 
come along. Now, some of us may be familiar with navigators. They're an American group, mainly working amongst university students, but they're really, really big into scripture memory verses. And the memory verse that we learnt first was Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a great verse to know by heart. Because Paul says in Galatians 2.20 exactly what he is saying in Romans 6. And he says in other places, I have died and risen again. I will live that. It's not something that just happens automatically. But it's not by law. It's not a rule that you have to keep. Because he actually tells us in verse 14, we are under grace. We can do this. The Spirit is given to us as a down payment. He empowers us to do it. And God's Word encourages us to do it. Reckon yourself, Paul is saying, dead to sin. He says in verse 12, don't let sin reign. Sin's not your boss. The commandant of the prison cannot tell you what to do. The only thing sin can do is bluster, is bully. Sin is not your master because you died with Christ. Dead to sin. Don't offer your bodies as instruments of sin. Anytime you choose to disobey, anytime you choose to honour another Lord that is not Christ, you build a kingdom that is in opposition to what God is doing. An instrument, a tool of unrighteousness. That kingdom will not stand. Christ is conquered. So why would you do it? Reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Because that is what you are. As you died with Christ, you rose again. And so now you can offer yourselves actively in dependence upon his grace, empowered by his spirit. You can offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness. Not working against God, but working for God. The word here that the NIV translates instrument could be translate weapon. A weapon of righteousness that prosecutes, that fights the war to see God's victory fully applied in this world, which it will be. You can choose, fight against or fight for. But as a Christian, as a Christian, it makes no sense to fight against what God is doing because you died to sin with Christ. So, brothers and sisters, how do we live this life now? What does our life look like? Knowing that it is the perfect work of Christ through his death and resurrection that grants us a security that the world cannot touch, that re-rails us onto God's perfect railway track that leads us to eternity with him. How do we live? We live with complete confidence, but with a constant war. J.C. Ryle said it like this, a true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus has paid that penalty. It has been declared done. We are right. Peace of conscience. But war within. Because until Christ returns, sin's power has been broken. Its penalty has been paid. But it remains. And as we unpack Romans 6 to 8, you'll actually see that Paul has a lot more to say about this. But brothers and sisters, same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen.